and welcome to the Enlightened Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Hunt. In this episode, we are going to be exploring a new avenue for the Enlightened Podcast, and that is introducing Crash Course History. Now, beforehand, we had already done an episode on the origins of World War II with my sometimes co-host, Ellie Smith. She has joined us again for part two in the series, but now we are going to begin not just talking about World War II, but history in general. So every Wednesday, we are going to release a history lesson in basically layman's terms, and we're going to go back and forth and talk about different historical events and different people that have affected history throughout the years. Basically, this is considered a mm, more or less a substitution for all those bad history teachers that we had out there. So if you have an interest in history or you just like listening to me and Ellie go back and forth, by all means, tune in. If not, well, I can't compel you to listen to every single one of our episodes all the way through, but I would love to be able to do that. So, in the meantime, until that power is granted to me, I will just say different strokes for different folks. So, introducing our next part in the World War II lesson on Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom. And so it begins. And so it begins. No, now it ends. I was thinking about that the other day. What up? Tapsing my northern English accent. I was just doing the, what's it called, the Ned Stark. I know. Um, oh, okay. I thought you were just talking about general. No, now it ends. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's sad that they really, they did such a good job with a lot of those scenes, and then mm-hmm. some of them were so bad. I know. Wow. Well. That's a whole other can of worms. We're not actually talking Game of Thrones today. No, we're not. We're talking about the real-life Game of Thrones, which is... The Wars of the Roses? Ha 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 ha. Look at you. It's almost like you teach history. Yeah. Um, now, so today we're going to be talking about the Wars of the Roses in modern terms. I suppose. I think that's a pretty fair analogy. I feel like World War One was a better qualification of that because everyone was related to each other. And the Wars of the Roses was the Cousins' War. I suppose that's fair. Machiavellian politics. (laughs) So, um, the last World War II episode that we went through, where we covered a bit of World War I just to bring people up to speed for, you know, just generalizations for two history teachers, and some people may not actually know all the details, so we're going to do another quick drive-by, setting the stage for the major powers. I feel like drive-by is slightly soon for Archduke Ferdinand. I don't. Oh god. <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen The Kingsman, oh, go see it. It's it, so good. It is spectacular and it's like fairly historically accurate to the point of where more than it needed to be. I was say I don't I don't think there was a historical inaccuracy in the movie. I don't think so either, and that's why I think it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um apart from like who kills who? But yeah, but it's I, very I, much like people die in the way that they're supposed to. Bingo. But I would, if there's one thing I can get across in this podcast, it's go watch that movie. That's a 10 out of 10 movie. Absolutely. We get to see that again this week. Okay. Um, so, we should probably start discussing 
Um, we went over Russia and Germany, yep. who were the major factors in this war, but we need to go over the other players. Yeah. So, um, do you want to do Axis or Allies? Mm, let's finish up with the Axis. Alright, so, um, I believe we left off with, um, we literally got up to Hitler's invasion of Poland, so yeah. we should discuss um, his major allies mm-hmm. were Italy and Japan, who mm-hmm. made up the Axis um, the major axis powers. Yes. There were minor powers and other powers that... Um, I think Romania and, like, Bulgaria. Yeah, they they were, like, force capitulated. Yeah. Um, but the these were... The major military the power, powers. Yes, the powers that openly supported Hitler from mm-hmm. the beginning. Um, let's talk about Italy first, because that's a very quick one. Yeah. You know more about it than I do. Um, so Italy was on the side of, against the central powers. Within Correct, the first... they were an allied power in the First World War. Yep. And they were a monarchy still at that time. They were, and it wasn't a particularly effective one. No. Well, they were like Germany in that they only came together in the 1800s, so. Yes, and it there was There were a under... bunch of warring city-states and provinces before that. Exactly. There's a lot of parallels between the two countries up until, literally, Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. So, um, basically what happened is the monarchy kind of fell apart, and then they did the same thing as Germany, where they kind of had a different type of government kind of attempted to stand in mm-hmm. its place, and it never really quite worked. And then, um, then comes to the fold Benito Mussolini, who was a, um, kind of a young firebrand, I don't know how you would describe a uh, political idealist, but kind of became a pragmatist. He, he's a lot like Hitler, mm-hmm. without uh, Hitler's crazy genius. Yeah. Um, where Mussolini is able to definitely um, do some public speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very effective public speaker, and he's definitely a big mover and shaker um, when it comes to Italy. But he was a Italian sniper. In the First World War, and then after the First World War, he begins uh, kind of his campaign as a political news um, paper man, functioner, whatever you want to call it. And he kind of invented the archetypal Nazi. Mm-hmm. You go in, you smash up your rival in the newspapers, you beat up anybody who disagrees with you. Mm-hmm. It, he really brought fascism to the fold mm-hmm. of um, what it could be. And Hitler openly um, talked about his... Uh, love of Mussolini and how he admired him as a man and how his um, version of fascism was basically how he wanted to run Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mussolini was actually a very effective leader of Italy when it came to some things. Mm -hmm. Um, Much like anything else, he kind of... uh, I believe it's still a joke in Italy, which is Mussolini made the trains come on time. Yeah. For... Everything else that he did. Right. Um, and he instilled, there was definitely an installation of terror. He kind of had this cult of personality, but it um, it built into what all fascists and communist states have become, which is, it just, it's a constant monitoring state and whatnot. Um, I'm just trying, like, people can see that I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. It's like, <laughs> this, is, this is not a visual medium. No, this is an audio medium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as my mother always said, I had the perfect face for radio. 
Um, so that's such an awful thing to say <laughs> to your child. She never said it in her life. Um, but yeah, it's a um, it's an interesting kind of uh, small um, hint of what ha- what happens in Germany. I should stress that uh, Mussolini comes to power. Several years before Hitler, yeah, was. he was in power. I in believe the in the mid twenties, mm-hmm. and lasted up until World War Two. Yeah, although as opposed to Hitler, he was actually executed. Yes. Whereas Hitler kills himself. So. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. If you don't know that Hitler dies at the end, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Spoilers: the Nazis lose. <clears throat> Yeah, but they came close, and that, I think that's, I was going to say, that is they the came main, close. Yeah, that is the main point of this podcast. They should have won, except Hitler shot himself in the ass. The head, actually. I mean, yes, but. Um, but, yeah, Italy becomes the first fascist state. Um, uh, funnily enough, Winston Churchill did s- several speeches condemning them, and then once he saw the rise of Bolsheviks, uh, Bolshevism mm-hmm. in um, in Russia. He actually um, praised Mussolini because he saw him as a defense against the growth of uh, yeah. communism because that was the other point of Mussolini. Two evils. Is they hated socialism and communism. Yep. Um, trying to think. Yeah. Um, they, um, Mussolini definitely uh, was in for the land grab in Asia. He was the Conquered Ethiopia, even though yep. the Ethiopians threw them back. Um, that was that was part of the what led to their entering the war on Germany's side. When I read Winston, the first part of Winston Churchill's history of the Second World War, the Ethiopia issue was a huge. Um, yeah, they were um, they were a lot more modern, mm-hmm. and even though they still were not up to the grade of European countries at that time, but people did not like the idea of Italy trying to gobble up more colonies yeah, because it, it hadn't the, become the a The world state had kind of gotten past the point of imperialism. Imperialism had fallen out of favor. Colonies had fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly with the end of World War One, yeah. colonies had kind of started to wind down. And you start to see that in the rest of the world after mm-hmm. World War II as well with the uh, French losing Indochina and Vietnam. Um, the English losing India, India and, and Palestine, yeah. the, and Pakistan. Um, the the settlement of is the creation of Israel. Yep. Um, after the British leave Pal- uh, Palestine. Um, and this actually leads nicely into Japan's entry into the side yeah. of the axis. So we definitely left off for World War One. The Japanese were also part of the Allies. Yes. Um, they actually had um, invaded, I believe. Russia, um, in the what's called the Russo-Japanese War, but I believe in World, uh, World War One at the end of it, I believe they supported the whites during the mm-hmm. Russian Revolution. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, possibly. Um, possibly years, sure. I believe that's what happened. But basically, the Japanese. I don't think anyone outside of Russia, like, officially, really supported the Bolsheviks. No, had, no one supported. Yeah, the it's like you had communists parties throughout Europe and America who mm-hmm. cheered the fall of the Romanovs and the rise of the Soviet Union, but no government ever No, not really. cheered them on until mm-hmm. they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Japan 
So Japan had been an isolationist state that would not allow any foreigners on its shores. Who is it? Commodore Perry? Yes. He's yeah. the one who opened is up Japan. William Perry? James Perry? I don't know. Something along those lines. But it was a it was a, it was an American, wasn't it? I think yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't until the Americans in the eighteen forties. Regardless, Commodore Perry, uh, who was an American, um, finally got into Japan, which had been a closed-off kingdom since, I believe, the 15-1600s, and uh, just would not allow any European trader, anybody, to set foot on its land. So the whole idea was that um, Commodore Perry, an American, went in there as a... I forget if he was actually a naval officer or he was just a trader. I think he was sent partly to try and open up trade routes yeah so he ended up uh opening the trade routes to japan japan uh began to modernize and i want to say this is during the 1840s 1850s and from that point onwards uh japan began to rapidly modernize um it began to industrialize it began to have a souped up naval force in particular and Uh, air force Air Force came later. Yes. But the the first thing was they, within 10 to 15 years, they had a massive navy. Yeah. Um, Only issue is that they're a group of island nations that have little to no natural resources. Yes, that's also entirely fair, is that they are, they obviously, they had the years of the shogunate government that was essentially, that was the feudalism that went into it. And it wasn't until... um, World War Two, that it began, or actually, I should say, World War One, that it began to kind of look outside of its borders instead of having the warring daimyos inside. Yeah. So, because it started to look outside, it began to look for where it could um, gain these natural resources like coal and oil mm-hmm. and steel, which yep. it all needed from either southern colonies or eastern. Yep. They either had to trade for mm-hmm. it with other nations or they needed to take over other other regions mm-hmm. to get it for themselves. But the issue is that so much of the South and Southeast Pacific was already colonized by mm-hmm. European powers at this time. Yep. Or American powers. Or American powers. Right, I was we had the Philippines. Say, yeah, the Philippines were we U.S. Spain. territory and we didn't give it back until, I think it's 1936 is when we... No, no, they were still they were still in American territory when they were invaded by Japan. Were they? Yeah. I thought we gave them their independence in the 30s. Nope. Okay. They were asking for it and they were pushing for it and MacArthur was recommending it, but the U.S. had, I think, agreed to Philippine independence by like 1940 or 1950 or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but Manuel Quezon, who was the president of the Philippines at the time, when kind of tremors of Japan were starting to hit the Philippines, was pushing for independence because they didn't want the Philippines drawn into a conflict on, as being considered part of a American territory. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened is MacArthur was the military commander of the Philippines when Japan invaded. Yeah. Um, in our mild defense of that, and it's very passive, I do not approve of American imperialism, but I'm going to say is everything we've seen from the Japanese empire is they would have invaded anyway. Oh, right, definitely. Absolutely. Um, they, were definitely, they were definitely prioritized because it was an American territory. Yeah. No, um, they would have gone anyway. Yeah. Um, but um, it's around uh, 1933 
that um, the Emperor of Japan, listening to his um, top generals... Who was the prime minister at the time? Tojo? Hideki Tojo? Yeah. Yes. Is the prime minister of Japan slash governor. He's the head honcho. Yeah. He's the, um, basically the, the chief in charge where, um, the actual emperor of Japan has less and less power. Yeah. Uh, as time goes They're on. They're more like a symbolic, almost a godlike figure behind yeah. the curtain. Exactly. So to speak. Um, so in the early thirties is actually when, um, it actually might have been the late 20s that the Chinese Civil War begins, yep. much like the um, Russian Civil War between the Reds and the Whites and yep. the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Yep, Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists and Mao Zedong and the yeah. Communists. So um, Mao was the uh, Communist um, freedom fighter at this time and was basically losing to Chiang Kai-shek at this point in time. But what happened is... Um, as they, were ter- as they were fighting in their civil war, a massive land invasion began by Japan, which suddenly had military might and power comparable to a European. Manchuria? Yes, and they invade Manchuria, and they very quickly take eastern China, yeah. almost in its entirety. They eventually get to all the way to India, and they are able to hold basically the Pacific, like, within yeah. their power. They hold many of the islands in between um, Hawaii and all the way to New Zealand, the Philippines, and parts of Australia. Um, but uh, the Japanese Empire immediately begins with its Chinese invasion, which uh, many scholars actually talk about as the first real conflict of the mm-hmm. Second World War. It officially doesn't begin until Hitler's invasion of Poland mm-hmm. in 1939. Yeah. But a lot of people argue that um, it already had begun yeah. with the Japanese invasion. Um, this is when it starts to... Japanese um, foreign policy begins uh, to get more and more erratic. Yeah. And the allies like the United States and um, Great Britain begin to look down on the Japanese actions. And they begin to cut off... Um, all their trade. Yeah, a lot of embargoes, a lot of yes sanctions. Yeah, and which FDR like, yes comes back and bites us in the ass. Oh yeah, well it's also it's Japan, not incorrectly, kind of looks at that and says, oh well that's hypocrisy. We're just doing the same thing that you guys did a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. and we're taking colonies for our own natural resources and our own survival and. But the issue is, is that China was very much a U.S., exactly. German, and Great British territory in which they could trade. Exactly. And so there are a lot of economic pressures that go into all of this. So yep. FDR puts in a lot of sanctions from the U.S. upon the Japanese and I think a lot rubber of the was allies. one of the big ones. What's up? I think rubber was one of the big ones. Rubber was one of the huge ones because they couldn't make tires for cars. Mm-hmm. And oil. And uh, oil, was the, I was going to say oil, steel, coal, all yep. of the above. All the things you need in order to keep an industrial society going. Uh, an industrial military power. Yeah, and I was they, just saying this to my kids today. We were talking about basic needs versus basic wants. And mm-hmm. it's what you need to survive on a day-to-day basis is very different than what a kind of massive complex like this needs to survive on a day-to-day basis no and the the rape and murder that was going on in this 
uh, in their treatment of China was very different from uh, what modern war was believed to have become. Yeah, and that's where to be more they were much, attached. Yeah, and, and you put it correctly, as we had kind of, as the West stopped conducting ourselves this way, probably a hundred years, yeah. maybe a little bit more before this, and Japan was. Uh, trying to come to the table as a modern power mm-hmm. and kind of being belittled. Yeah. And then so Japan went and conducted warfare as they saw fit. Yeah. And it was right in line with the way the Nazis mm-hmm. um, conducted It's that culture war. clash where as awful as the Western Front was, people who fought in the Pacific Front come back with just such a much such a different outlook because it was two wildly different views of what warfare, of what warfare should what warfare should be and would be so the mistake that the west made is that they did not take japan seriously no, from they the did not. they seriously thought that they could overwhelm the japanese which they should have learned better because japan kicked russia's ass in like 1910 exactly the, uh, Japan had clearly shown itself to be a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, so, that leaves us with Japan. That brings us right up until um, Pearl Harbor, more or less. Mm-hmm. So we'll leave Japan there, and then we'll switch tracks. And Do you want to do France or Great Britain first? Let's do France. I want to end with Great Britain, because they're my favorite. Mm, I do. Well, terrible, great, wonderful. What I'm an Anglophile. I am myself. Um, Not a Francophobe, but I am definitely an Anglophile. That is, that's, it applies to me as well. Yeah. Um, So, the... France, I think, is in the Third Republic at this point. I don't know the French government enough at this point in time. It's super freaking weird. Is this, Pétain is in charge at this point? Pétain is in charge after... I believe after the Nazi takeover of France. I believe he's in charge during the Vichy government. Okay. So I believe, I don't know who um, is in charge. It's not de Gaulle, but I feel like it's another G name. I feel like he was... Gerard? Yeah, Gerard was, I think, like the president in exile or something. Of the French government in exile. Yeah. Because de Gaulle was like the free free French leader. Um, But it was after the... Just to... Mm-hmm. I'm trying to organize the French governments in my head. Because after the French Revolution, there was the... Napoleon? Well, af- after the fall of Rose Pierre and everything, yes. Yeah, then the, the July monarchy. Mm-hmm. Then there were a couple of republics, I believe, before the outbreak of World War II. So I do think that France is on its third republic at this time. I think currently today they're on their fifth republic. Yeah, France really can't seem to get keep... a government in order, which yeah. is very interesting. And it's it's weird to me where it's like I don't know if it's just that things keep get if things keep getting quote unquote overthrown or if they mm-hmm. keep changing their constitution. I don't know why it's like the fifth Yeah like version five point Yeah, I don't get it either. But um so after World War One France was obviously um the Western Front was mm-hmm. France. Yeah. Um it was a total battleground that went back and forth it was definitely the most punitive against germany yep but that is because it certainly lost the most and it's all the they have those those historic conflicts and resentments that go back hundreds of years between 
France and the German countries. Yeah, absolutely. They're two countries that border each other. Yeah. So what else are you going to It's like get? it's it's the same as the the French and British mm-hmm. rivalry in the kind of medieval middle Renaissance era. Oh, the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, Hundred Years' War, even up until kind of the up until World War One. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, the French definitely took um an absolute beating um during the First World War. Uh, it takes them a while to get their um, country back in order, more or less. Mm-hmm. But they're able to roughly do it. Um, I'd say the biggest thing I can contribute on them overall is they simply just have the um, the introduction of the Maginot line. Yeah. Hi, are we getting a... We're getting a puppy visitor. Anyway, the Maginot line. Uh, the Maginot line is built... Um, as a French fortification, and it's a series of fortifications all along the western front where um, the borders of France are. Um, and it's the line between Germany and mm-hmm. France. Um, the Maginot Line is a series of modern fortifications that very seriously would inhibit any ability for any army to attack France from the west, and it's actually very well done. Yeah. Um, but that's about all I can contribute on mm-hmm. French history up until that point. My specialty is more uh, the revolution in Napoleon. I know. No, and it is. It's. I read Barbara Tuckman's, um I'm blanking on the name of it. Something August. The Guns of August. The Guns of August, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, very detailed. A little bit hard to get through, but still worth it. Um, looks at literally just that month of August, 1914, when World War One started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think France, because they suffered so much of the physical toll to the to their their nation of World War One, the mental toll that was there was just as strong, and they did not have the manpower to build up their army again. They were having an impossible time trying to rebuild their military. And this will get us into Great Great Britain a little bit, too, is while Hitler was flouting every article of the Treaty of Versailles and remilitarizing Germany, Great Britain, the United States, and France, partly because Great Britain and America were insisting on it, were continuing to demilitarize and keep their armies small. So they were caught just a little bit unprepared, you could say. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to add to France? All I can think to add, again, I don't know enough about France to make a fully reasoned argument. Again, we are amateur historians on our For Fun podcast. Um, is how desperately France looked to Great Britain for help. Very much so, In yeah. every instance, in, mm-hmm. like, manpower, in advice, in kind of moral support against Germany. And again, this will get us into Great Britain, and how at every turn, Great Britain looked at Hitler and was like, eh, it's okay, you're fine, that's okay, we don't care, we're good, we're good, don't worry about it. Sure, you can have Czechoslovakia. Sure, you can have Alsace and Lorraine and the Sudetenland and that's okay. We're fine. We don't. We don't. We don't want another war. So that brings us to Great Britain. Great Britain had um, definitely gone through as much as 
um, any in mm-hmm. the war, um, aside from perhaps France and Germany themselves or Russia. I would say I would argue Belgium too. A big part of Belgium was yep, yep, definitely overrun, um, but Belgium um, was firmly declaring their neutrality up until Germany invaded. Yep. So <laughs> that brings us to um, Great Britain at this time. Great Britain spends um, World War One um, very much um, as a major power. It mm-hmm. is probably the most powerful of the Allies, aside from maybe Russia at this point in time, but it's able to marshal its power better than Russia can. Mm-hmm. So, um, Great Britain's famous for its prestige as uh, an army, but also um, because of its navy. And its navy is its specialty. It was the naval power of the world for a very long time. Yeah. Um, During World War I, um, Great Britain is able to... um, maintain the trenches uh, with the French on the Western Front as well as uh, attempting to uh, push through um, the Balkans and the Gallipoli campaign. Um, But it all ends in dust and disarray and blood and mud like everything else in World War Mm -hmm. I. The greatest thing that the British are able to contribute is the tank. And the tank is what um, begins to turn the tide in the, on the side of the Allies. Um, the British are also hugely responsible for um, the advent of the embargo on uh, Germany and the uh, basically just wrapping around um, the Central Powers like a snake. And just coiling around it and crushing off any trade. As an island nation, they know how important it is that you get the resources that you need. Exactly. And it it, um, basically chokes Germany with its uh, navy. Yeah. As well as its army. I say army more than navy. Germany isn't exactly a sea power. It it was becoming a sea power. Was that becoming, was part of yes, World War Yes, they don't I. have a massive... They had a very large navy at the beginning of World right, War Right, right, but they don't have a massive coastline is what I mean. No, but that where else are you going to get resources from? Yeah. So... Well, they got plenty of landscape and forests and stuff. That got bombed to hell. Yes. So and they then needed the, to import, and the Britain could Dayton import. land, I think, was, the big, was one of the big ones. And then the... the, the refineries in Alsace and Lorraine. Yeah. It was they lost all of that yes. because of World War One. And then because they, of the wars. And that was part of retaking it. Yeah. So um after World War One, um, England kinda goes through um I, I wanna call it like a modernization, a reform crisis of, you know, um allowing Irish home rule as mm-hmm. well as um, getting the votes for women. Yeah. Um, definitely some socialism comes into oh, yeah. play. Yeah. And kind of the, there's a lot of... The Labour Party mm-hmm. got very, very powerful very yeah. quickly. And they were, early on, they were essentially socialists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it is very interesting to watch um, the difference between 
uh, Great Britain and Russia yeah. as Russia um, has its monarchy toppled and its government completely ended. Whereas you have um, Great Britain kind of stick the landing and realizes that it does indeed need to reform. Say Great Britain was one of the few old world powers that managed to adapt enough over time to stay in control. Yep, and very much it stays so. Um, So those are the major things that go on in the in-between periods mm-hmm. between the two wars, I would say. I don't know that there's another major... Not really. The in-between period is kind of very focused on trying to rebuild. And... Yeah, and it's... Uh, economics play, yeah. play a huge role in dealing with the Great Depression exactly. as well. Um, so, Mr. Chamberlain comes to power as the British Prime Minister from the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is, by all accounts, he's actually a pretty good prime minister. From everything that I have ever read or heard or like known about him, seems like a good man, good politician. Mm-hmm. Was not right for this period in history. Uh, I would say woefully ill-equipped to yes. deal with foreign policy. Yes. Um, so. Basically, to break down Neville Chamberlain is, he is the man that pushed for appeasement. Yep. Uh, he had seen what World War One had done to an entire generation of young men, and uh, very simply put, said yes to Hitler. He, f- he knew, was well aware that the treatment of Germany after World War One was very harsh and the Great Depression had hit it even harder. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was very within reason that the Treaty of Versailles could be kind of chucked out the window yeah. and they could renegotiate. He met with Hitler and this is before Hitler was known for what he was and they all just kind of accepted and were kind of blown away by his charm and he returned to Great Britain with the slogan, Peace in Our Time. Yep. Because he basically drew a line in the sand and said, you will not cross here, but you can take everything up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got snowed. Say he, Hitler proceeded to immediately cross that line. Yes, but um, unprecedented was the king had him out on the uh, balcony of Buckingham Palace, which uh, I believe no commoner had ever been mm-hmm. on... Um, that balcony before mm-hmm. with the king and they pronounced peace in our time and it was very political yeah. which the king and queen are supposed to be above yes um and basically for a few weeks they thought that um hitler was going to do exactly what um they asked him to yeah what they had agreed to and he reneged on that immediately. Say, i think benny invaded czechoslovakia right he, I believe it was it after Czechoslovakia. It was either after. I believe he was going. He like went for the Sudetenland. There were a bunch of conferences, and they were mm-hmm. like, "Okay, fine, you can have the Sudetenland, but you can't take it Czechoslovakia." And Hitler was like, "All right, cool." Everyone went home, and like a few weeks later, he was like, "Okay, cool, I'm in Czechoslovakia now. Prague's mine." Uh, that may have happened, but the actual outbreak wasn't until the invasion of Poland. So I feel right. like they wouldn't have had peace in our time and all that. And. There was a lot of Czechoslovakia feeling abandoned, feeling like yes. they had had promises made that they would be defended, and mm-hmm. then Britain was like... But I'm not sure if that was before or after. Yeah. 
I feel like there were a couple of times where they had some level of an agreement that Hitler wasn't going to take X, Y, or Z place, and then mm. he did, and they they didn't actively say, okay, we actually have to go to war now until Poland, because they had a very solid like public agreement that if Poland was invaded, they would come to their defense. Yep, and Hitler basically kept towing lines. Pushing seeing, and pushing and pushing. Yeah, and seeing what would happen, and nothing happened after the Sudetenland. Yep. Uh, nothing happened after Oslo's Lorraine. Yep. And nothing happened after Czechoslovakia, so he went for Poland, believing that he could actually take it yeah. and wouldn't mind. I should also clarify, there is a secret non-aggression pact between Stalin and Hitler yes. that they would split Poland down yes. the middle. So the Soviet Union is also on his side. So Hitler believes he also... I wouldn't quite go so far as saying on his side. Yeah, so far were, as they were originally they're Poland. not going to interfere. Yes, but the idea is that Hitler can look west yes. first, and then he can be given his invasion. So I think that pretty much wraps up everyone. Um, the United States doesn't come into the war until several years later. It's literally January of 1942 before we do anything, because we wait. Mm-hmm. it's not until after Pearl Harbor that we start to actively put our own armed forces into the fray. We'd been sending material for a while through the Lend-Lease program, but Mm -hmm. you don't see American boots on the ground until 1942. So, uh, essentially, America is uh, the sleeping bear, as uh, the analogy goes. But that pretty much wraps us up for 1939, where all the major powers stood. So, Mm -hmm. uh, our next World War II podcast will the actual war itself the breakout of the conflict yes it will and we will continue on from there i'm gonna pretend like i haven't re-recorded this ad 15 times hi i'm ben hunt i hate to interrupt your lovely podcast experience with this ad but i'm going to anyway why because anchor needs me to So, I'm really never going to advertise for anything that I don't believe in, and Anchor, I actually believe in. So, Anchor is an app or a website that allows me to do everything I need to for the podcast. It allows me to record and edit right from my phone or my computer. It also allows me to distribute my podcasts on every listening platform you can think of, from Spotify to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, even Stitcher. So basically, it's a one-stop shop for everything you need in a podcast. And best of all, it's totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening to the Enlightened Podcast. We are brought to you by Anchor, a subdivision of Spotify specifically for podcasting. Not only can we be found on Spotify, we can also be found on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or frankly, anywhere you can find a good podcast. We can also be found on Instagram and Facebook. We're working on getting a Snapchat together. And in the meantime, you can DM us any questions, thoughts, concerns, or just a review. 
We've gotten more than a couple so far, and they've been overwhelmingly positive, not to brag, but we're pretty happy about that. So if you have any other thoughts or opinions, please feel free to let us know. And in the meantime, like and subscribe for more content.